200 Women, The Listening Ground, brought to you by Westpac as part of the 200 anniversary celebrations. I'm Felicity Duffy, Head of Women's Markets for Westpac. Episode 5, Pain. No one likes to talk about pain. Listen as some extraordinary women talk about stories of breast cancer, death of a child, depression and witnessing loved ones pass away. Lydia was diagnosed with breast cancer and I still remember that day so clearly. My husband was CEO of Westpac and his office was in Martin Place and I remember saying to him, I need to meet you for a cup of coffee. And I remember sitting in that coffee shop telling him I had breast cancer and we were both in tears. And walking across with my young son, who was then only 15, and I said, sit down, darling, I've got to tell you something. I said, Mum, I've got breast cancer. And feeling he'd burst into tears and he looked at me and a smile came on his face and he said, oh, Ma, I thought you were breaking up. And I thought, yeah, maybe that put life in perspective. But I tell you what, that was the depth for me because if you don't have your health and you look at your kids and think, am I ever going to see them grow up? Am I going to see my grandkids? That, I think, is the lowest of the low. When I was 35, I had breast cancer, and that's quite a, a gear shift in your life. I can say that um, being somebody who is so many years on from it, and I, I know, and clearly one of the very lucky ones, that um, everybody comes out of that with more than they went into it. Um, there's something very powerful about all the minutiae of life falling away, labels, losing all the things and the, the way we are very down on ourselves and very critical of ourselves and just being, actually, because you, you remain in the moment in order not to miss anything. And I think that is something I also learned from Camille and certainly from that experience. So the idea behind Anna Ono is not just to provide a product or a service to women diagnosed with breast cancer, but it's really to address a woman being a woman and enjoying life and feeling sexy and feeling beautiful and feeling like herself. Because what I experienced and what a lot of women experience during breast cancer is that you kind of just get stripped down to your bare minimum. You lose your eyelashes, you lose your eyebrows, you lose your hair. All of those things are very physical. Everybody can see them day in and day out. You may wear a wig, but you can still kind of tell that it's a wig. What people don't see is the fact that you've also lost a sense of identity by losing your breasts to the disease because that's shielded, that's covered. That's something only you get to know about. And, but that's a very big pivot in how you feel about yourself because we're women, right? We identify with bits and pieces of ourselves and although all of those things are physical, they add up to make you, you, right? And um, I had a very dear friend, Champagne Joy, who just sadly passed away last Monday, but we talked a lot about this and she said very cleverly that what makes you a woman is a piece they can't cut away. And that to me was, um, incredibly impactful because I think I've been looking for that answer for a long time because I was so young like I associated myself so physically to being a woman I didn't earn 
my woman pillar yet. You know what I'm saying? I didn't birth babies. I didn't have children. I didn't raise another human being. I was just existing. So to kind of not have that experience where that, I think, really turns you into that deep core of a woman, I had to find that in other ways. And with Anna Ono, it's not just we design bras for women with breast cancer. It's that whole journey of being able to find yourself again, whatever that means to you, you know, and does wearing a beautiful bra make you feel better about yourself, make you feel sexier, make you stand a little bit taller? It does to a lot of us because that's our hidden secret. That's the piece that we know we did in the morning. Nobody else might see it throughout the entire day, but we do. And that's, that's huge for our inner selves and our consciousness and our ability to be strong and be proud. Death, I think, has to, for me, affect you. And it is, that is real misery. And, and you, you, depending on how you deal with these things and who it, who, who it was that may have died, um, does send you into the depth of misery, and it certainly did with me. And, and, and as a result, I, um, I did suffer from depression following the death of my husband. Uh, but I was terribly fortunate in that I had fantastic family around me um, who, because I refused to believe it. I was coping perfectly well. There was nothing wrong with me. But it takes a family member or a very close friend, and in this instance, it was my family who said to me, you're not coping. I'm telling you straight, I'm being honest with you. You're not coping, and you're taking it out on your son. Goodness, he was going through his own grief. How hideous was that? But I didn't see that. I couldn't see that for myself. I was blind to that. So, but I guess the thing for me was that um, because of that, I went and sought help. And yes, I was depressed. I think I had a jolly good reason to be depressed, but <clears throat> yes, I was depressed. But I sought help and, and, and I dealt with it. And, um, and I'm through that now. Uh, and it taught me a lot, but it also taught me to talk about it. Don't, I, I refuse to sweep these things under the carpet. Deep misery for me is um, you know, losing someone that you think you can't breathe without. Um, deep misery is seeing people that you love so ill that you know they're not going to make it. I mean, I've sat and held to three people's hands as the machines have been turned off. Um, I know the 20 minutes from turning off the life support to that last, sh last shuddering breath. You believe it in one minute and then the next minute it hasn't happened because that's what you protect yourself with. But eventually you have to come to realise that it's happened. She's gone, the most precious thing in your life has been taken away from you. And the way she died was so horrendous, really. To live with that, both Barry and I, wake up the same time she died, every, in the middle of the night. And that goes, why couldn't you protect her? You protected her all along. But the, here comes the occasion now where you can do nothing. 
and it's scary and try to help other people that they don't have to go through that. That's what it's about. And my father died very suddenly when I was 21. So that was just a huge kind of capsize really. And I suppose it kind of hammered sort of home even more that idea of the, the preciousness of life and, and health. And I think with that from quite early on came a, a sort of a desire just to make the most of life and make the most of those opportunities that I had and of my health and well-being whilst I had it. Because, you know, I was seeing so starkly how quickly that cannot be there. And so I think my dad's attitude towards life was, has, was and still is really powerful on me. You know, his life and death have sort of profoundly impacted the way I look at the world. And likewise with my mum too, her strength in coping with all that adversity and caring for my dad whilst kind of doing lots of stuff for us as kids, that's massively powerful and how she's managed to hold us all together, you know, 11 years hence, it's, that's really inspiring. Um, it was my father's death which prompted my decision to row solo across the Indian Ocean in 2009. So prior to that, prior to his death, I'd been thinking about rowing an ocean. I wanted to do it with other people because I had no concept of going solo. And quite early on in the planning phases, Dad died and I sort of stood at his funeral and told everybody that I wanted to make this journey and go solo in his memory, you know, using it as a way to get through the grief and do something positive for others. My middle sister suicided 11 and a half years ago. So that's, you know, that kind of sense of loss is something that's really, that's been a very formative thing. And I think, you know, that is, that is an ongoing kind of sense of, you know, um, I guess contacting that level of, of sadness and at some points misery. I think it, it's very much about that. Um, but I, yeah, I think that it's it's all about seeing seeing life as some kind of sense of yin and yang, as as esoteric and hippie as that sounds. I think, you know, it's it's about understanding that there are moments of intense darkness, but they're always followed by moments of light, and how those things work together. I think is um, yeah, it's really important to to always know that there's something, you know, at the end of it all. It's it's not for nothing. Yeah. There's, there's so much misery, so much pain in the world and perhaps one of the biggest sources of misery is to see how as human beings we don't learn from the past, how little, how, how short, flimsy is our memory, collective memory. Um, sometimes, you know, there are societies of collective amnesia, Turkey is a society of collective amnesia. And when you don't learn from the mistakes of the past, you can't really grow up when you can't face those mistakes. I'm not talking about living in the past, um, but to learn from those mistakes. And it is 
in that regard, I think, very essential to, to keep activism alive. We can't take things for granted. Even in Western democracies, liberal democracies, nothing can be taken for granted, including women's rights, including LGBT rights, including freedom of speech. These are things we need to care about and put some effort into to, to keep them breathing and alive. So um, I think this is a crucial time in history when more and more people are realizing that, yes, in fact, we might be sliding backwards and we need more international solidarity, we need more global consciousness, awareness, and we might end up making the mistakes that our um, grandparents made once upon a time. So it's good to have that kind of consciousness. I think memory is a responsibility. I think what makes me sad when I see people that have potential and that they just don't engage. And uh, you just feel like it's, it's wasted energy, you know, wasted leadership because people, that they have that power, they, they can get in there, but then they refuse not to, you know, they choose not to do it. And we see that, I think, a lot of people in our society that there's just uh, so much leisure, so much entertainment that, you know, people, especially young people, that are so hooked on their cell phones or their video games and, they're not coming out into the world and seeing what's really going on around them. And I think uh, the other thing that makes me sad is when you see so many people that are homeless in our society, when we have, I say we're the richest country in the world, we have so many empty houses and so many homeless people on the street. And this is, this, this is just a disgrace for our government, the United States of America, the richest country in the world, and that we can't house our people, you know, or give them medical care or give them a free education like they have in other countries. It's, it's, like our, it's this uh, greedy corporate control that we have of our government that is depriving people of a decent education, decent health care, decent shelter. Decent, you know, I think this is a, it's, a, it's a sin. I believe it's a sin. When you have people that are making multi-millions of dollars as their salaries and their stock options, and yet people can't uh, they can't afford to live on what they earn. And, we, and it's so, uh, um, it's not only wrong, but it's, uh, it's almost, like, you might say it's almost a sin. It's almost evil. With James Foley, um, he and I had been working in Syria for six months together. I knew him from working in Libya. So we trusted each other and um, we grew very close and everywhere we went, you know, he was sort of, he was a very charming, dashing person, so he could easily break the ice with people, especially because we were in such a patriarchal society in Syria. So I depended on him a lot to break those conversations in and to get us, you know, to places that we needed to go. And, uh, and, and he did that just so swiftly and adeptly. Um, but I was actually, uh, I had issues with my camera uh, one week, and it was in November, early November, so I had to leave. And we decided that we would rendezvous at some point again in Turkey. Uh, and the day that he was coming out to meet me, um, he was kidnapped with, with a British photojournalist as well. And I think at that moment, when I knew, I found out six hours later that he, he had been indeed kidnapped, um, that it was going to be a very long process, that this kidnapping wouldn't be the f as uh, perhaps easy or swift as his first 
detainment in, in Libya. He was detained by government forces in Libya, and in Syria we had no idea who he was taken by. I think what was really difficult about his death was that it was so public. And I was in New York at the time, uh, and I remember just seeing social media blow up with the news about him. And, and this is somebody that I knew really well, you know, and to have to sit through this stream of news coming out and, and everything sounding so impersonal when you knew this person um, was really hard. And having to see it the next morning <laughs> all over the newspapers and tabloids using the picture of his execution um, you know, to make sensationalist headlines was, was really tough. Um, but, I, you know, and then having to also hear comments from people saying, well, you know, what was he doing there in the first place? What was he doing in Syria? Uh, and then having to defend that was just infuriating. You don't get to ask that question of, of my friend who risked his life to try to bring you a story of people that he cared about, people that he felt needed to have their voices heard. Jim truly sought to be a voice for the voiceless. He wanted to give voice to those people who were yearning for freedom and suffering so because of that, you know. He was particularly taken by a lot of the children, innocent children waiting in line for bread and who were orphaned and uh, maimed. And it's only gotten worse, Jeff. So um, that is why I felt compelled um, within a month of Jim's public execution to start the James W. Foy Legacy Foundation. I just um, felt um, Jim had a lot of work he wanted to do. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope it inspires your thinking today and maybe even your actions tomorrow. Westpac is very proud to have supported 200 Women, The Listening Ground. For the past 200 years, Westpac has continued to stand side by side with the women of this country. We believe wonderful things can happen when we come together, listen and learn from each other. We created Ruby Connection, our online networking platform for this very reason, and we invite you to join us at rubyconnection.com.au.